0: If you look in your bulletins, please, our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 1. It's a fairly long passage, and my family was teasing me this morning that how long would it be before people kind of nodded off, but I said they'll be following along in a bulletin and uh, thinking about how they might pronounce some of these names. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jehoniah. And, and his brothers. At the time of the departure, deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jeconiah was the father of Shereil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elazar, and Elazar the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportations to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from asleep, he did did as the angel of the Lord commended him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless his holy word.
1: Morning. If I didn't see you before Christmas, Merry Christmas, belated Merry Christmas, and if I don't see you before the new year, Happy New Year. I'm Charles McKnight, the pastoral assistant here at Christ Central Church, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to bring you God's word this morning. Keep calm and carry on. Have you ever heard or seen this slogan before? Keep calm and carry on. This catchphrase that was originally coined by the British government to strengthen morale during the Second World War has resurged and morphed into a modern Western pop culture reference over the past few years. Today, Keep Calm and Carry On, and its hundreds of parodies can be found emblazoned on everything from coffee mugs to T-shirts, from iPhone cases to beer koozies, from golf balls to teddy bears. Keep calm and carry on. Before the mass popularity of this slogan, this was a a call by a government to a war-wearied civilian population to remain calm, to relax, to rest in the strength and ability of their military and their government to protect its people if attacked, and to carry on, to continue with their lives, to keep on keeping on, to not give up in or out despite the dark and trying circumstances of that period. Keep calm, the British government told its people, and carry on. I believe that in a way, keep calm and carry on is an appropriate call to us as believers who are spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally war-wearied from living as broken people in a broken world. The Lord calls us to keep calm, to rest, to not worry or fret and to carry on, to remain steadfast, to persevere, to keep on keeping on in our faith. And this Christian call to keep on and to keep calm and carry on is possible when and only when we lean on the truth that God is faithful to fulfill each and every promise he has made, no matter how hopeless the circumstances or situations in this life. May seem. In other words, as believers, we can keep on keeping on because God is faithful to do just what He said He would do. And we see as we turn to our text this morning that the greatest example and proof of the Lord's total commitment to keep each and every last one of His promises He's made to us, His people, is the Christmas story. Christmas. That celebration of the birth of Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who is fully God and fully man, sent as the grand and climactic fulfillment of a promise God made thousands of years earlier, when he promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and promised David that from his family, a ruler would come and reign as king forever. Jesus' birth is proof that God keeps his promises. Christmas is the ultimate evidence that God will do just what he said he would do. And because God will do what he said he would do, we as believers can keep calm and carry on. And the Christmas story, especially that part laid out in our Matthew passage, not only proves that God fulfills his promises, it also shows us how God fulfills his promises. Matthew 1 reminds us this morning that God doesn't operate according to the limits of our own finite reasoning. It reminds us that God doesn't rely on our own abilities or talents, our strengths, or anything that we have to accomplish what he wants to get accomplished. This genealogy and narrative of the immaculate conception of Jesus is clear evidence that God fulfills his promises, one, In his own perfect timing. Two, in his own perfect way. And three, himself. In his own perfect timing. In his own perfect way. Himself. Our text begins with the genealogy, the the family tree, the, the bloodline of the human ancestry of Jesus. Now, I know most of you usually skim over or skip through this part of the Christmas story. Sometimes it can feel like genealogies are put in the Bible by the Lord to help us fall asleep, right? They're so boring and unnecessary. And why would you start a story with one of these? For a modern Western audience like us, beginning with a genealogy seems like one of the worst ways possible to open a story. But we must understand that first century Jews wouldn't have viewed genealogies the way most of us do. Now, Jews were all about some genealogies. Are you a son of Abraham was the million-dollar question in their socio-political context. And folks took great pains to ensure a proper genealogical record was maintained to prove their kinship to the great patriarchs of the faith. And so as strange as it may seem for us today, Matthew's genealogical opening would have actually captivated the original Jewish audience, pulling them into the christmas story but if we look just a little closer at the genealogy it becomes clear that matthew has other purposes more important reasons for recounting the generations upon generations that came and went between god's promise to abraham and the literal birth of that promise in jesus Through this genealogy, Matthew makes the simple yet uber-significant point that God's covenant promise took a really, really, really long time to reach fulfillment. Look back at verse 17. Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, the Christ, 14 generations. What Matthew's doing is he's summarizing, saying that his genealogy that goes from verse 2 to 16 contains three sets or time periods of 14 generations in each. And he arranges these according to, in chronological order, according, according to key turning points in the history of Israel. From Abraham to the climactic rise of the royal line. In, Uh, in King David, in verses 2 through 6. Then from David's son, Solomon, to the fall of Israel into Babylonian captivity, in verses 7 through 11. And then finally to that long period where Israel fell into relative obscurity under Roman rule, which was the period in which the birth of Christ occurs. So you got three sets of 14 generations. Now I was an English major. But my math is good enough to figure out that three time periods with 14 generations in each of them is 42. Get this, 42 generations that were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham, yet did not see them completely fulfilled in their lifetime. And most scholars agree that there were even more generations than just these 42 When Matthew says all the generations in the beginning of verse 17, he's simply saying all the generations that he decided to include in his genealogical recap. Here's the point. God made a promise and took a couple of thousand years to fulfill that promise. But Paul tells us in Galatians that it wasn't until the fullness of time had come that God sent his son. In other words, God sent his son right on time, according to his timetable. I remember when I was a little boy at the church that I grew up in, hearing the choir singing a song called, um, He's an On-Time God. Anybody ever heard that song before? He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. That's pretty much the entire song, right? And I remember seeing especially the old faces in the congregation with their eyes closed and and their head up and their mouth wide open, smiling and and tears traveling down the wrinkles in their face, singing at the top of their lungs. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Those old believers in that church, through years of trials and oppression, through a lifetime of struggle and pain, had come to learn that God was truly an on-time God. Not an on-my-time God, but a God who moves and acts according to his own perfect, omniscient timing. And in that reality, they were able to worship. They were able to find rest and joy. Standing on that truth, they were able to keep calm and carry on. Brothers and sisters, God's mysterious perfect timing can seem ridiculously long from our limited human perspective. The 42 generations in Jesus' genealogy each looked around at their circumstances and situations and wondered when God would finally redeem and restore. When would the promised Messiah, the Savior, finally come and save? And like those 42 generations, we at times find ourselves looking at all the brokenness in and around our own lives and wonder why the Lord won't just snap his fingers and make all right and well. I mean, I think about it a lot. I know he's God. I know he can do it. So why doesn't he just do it now? You ever wonder that? Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and restore all of our broken relationships? Why doesn't he just go ahead and completely heal us from sickness and poverty and and addiction and and rescue us from disappointment and heartbreak and, and deliver us from sin and Satan's attacks? Why doesn't Jesus just come back today, right now, and bring true justice and peace and wipe away every tear like he promised? Why doesn't he just do it all? Now. Brothers and sisters, it's right to long for these things to happen. It's right for us to long for the fullness of God's redemptive power to be made manifest in and around our lives. But we must never allow this longing to become doubting. We must never allow this longing to become doubting. Satan wants nothing more than to get you to doubt God's ability and faithfulness to fulfill his promises. And he'll use God's non-immediate timing as part of his arsenal to persuade you to doubt. So in those times when you are tempted to doubt, when you are struggling to keep calm and carry on, Remember Matthew 1. Remember this genealogy. Remember the 42 plus generations between God's promise and the fulfillment. Remember that God is 100% without doubt, without exception, able and faithful to fulfill his promises. But in his own perfect timing. God has not forgot about you. God has not dropped the ball. God never fails. He will fulfill his promises to redeem and restore and to reconcile all things at exactly the right time. In part in this life and completely in the next. christ central God will do what he said he will do in his own perfect timing. So keep calm and carry on. And we can also keep calm and carry on because God will do what he said he would do in his own perfect way. If we look closer at this genealogy, it doesn't take long before we realize that God had been actively moving incrementally, generation after generations toward his promise fulfillment in Christ. And it also becomes clear that God's moving, this this progression, God's advancement, often occurred in ways that were upside down, unusual, and unexpected. Just look at all the unexpected people and situation God used to create Jesus' family tree in history. I mean, we could spend hours going through each and every individual name in this genealogy and basically, prove how none of them would be top candidates to be in the royal lineage of Christ. And I want to specifically draw your attention this morning to three groups or, or types of individuals and circumstances that the Lord unexpectedly used to continue the line that would lead to the Savior. The first group that we see in this genealogy is the ordinary. The ordinary the non-extraordinary, the regular, the normal. One would think that if the Savior of the world were going to come through some folks, that they probably should be some pretty impressive people, right? But that was often not the case in Jesus' family tree. We see folks in Jesus' Jesus's lineage that are, well, frankly, unimpressive, just plain common folk. People like Hezron, Ram, Nashon, Akim. Just regular folk and re- with regular lives used by God to carry on the line of the Messiah. And of course, there's the ordinary peasant girl named Mary and the ordinary carpenter named Joseph who would be chosen as the earthly parents of the Savior of the world. God fulfills His promises in His own way through the people and circumstances He chooses including the ordinary. We also see in this genealogy that God often chooses to move through people that would be considered outsiders, people who weren't even part of the bloodline of ethnic Israel. As a matter of fact, most of the women that Matthew includes in his genealogy would fall into the ethnic outsider category. Look at Tamar and Rahab. They were Canaanites. Look at Ruth. She was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, she was a Hittite. All these women were ethnic outsiders. Moreover, these women not only demonstrates God's unexpected use of outsiders, they also represent God's unexpected use of some sinful and scandalous, some morally outrageous behavior to push his promises towards fulfillment. What do I mean? Rahab was a former prostitute. Tamar enters the family line after she disguises herself as a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law Judah, and ends up pregnant with twins, one of which God will use to carry on his royal lineage to the Messiah. Bathsheba enters the family through the lustful actions of King David, who seduced her while she was still married to one of David's troops, and David had her husband killed as part of the cover-up. Scandalous and downright wicked people in situations like these litter Jesus' royal lineage. I mean, look at some of the other kings listed. King Ahaz completely turned his back on God, desecrated the temple, and demanded God's people worship pagan gods. And King Jehoram murdered all his brothers and married his daughter. Y'all, that's some old Nancy Grace, Jerry Springer type stuff right there. Shocking, shameful, disgraceful, outrageous situations all used by God to handcraft the lineage of Jesus. And what does all this teach us? It teaches us that God fulfills his promises in his own way. Ways that are often mysterious, but always perfect. Y'all, I know this is true from my own life, my own Christian spirits. I look at my life and And all the the stupid and sinful and selfish and destructive and godless things that I've done since I became a Christian. And I'm blown away by how the Lord uses broken people like myself to bring about his kingdom purposes in this world. You can ask my wife, sitting right there. I am by no means a perfect candidate to be used by God to do anything. I can be arrogant and judgmental and self-righteous. I get irritable when I'm tired and I care entirely too much about my image. Just to scratch the surface. But God, in his own mysterious and sovereign providence, has decided to call and use somebody as raggedy as me to stand up here in front of you and to do something I never, ever thought I'd be doing, preaching the gospel. Look at your own lives. Think about your own testimonies. Look at what God got some of y'all doing. If, if you could have mapped out your life years ago, it probably would not look like it does right now. And I'll bet that you wouldn't have included all the twists and turns, all the setbacks and heartbreaks, all the janky and jacked up stuff that you've done and been through. But I'll also bet that you can see even now how through all that mess, God was moving and shifting, coordinating and orchestrating what seemed like worthless, meaningless, hopeless situations to bring you to where you are today to draw you to your knees at the foot of the cross and show you your need for the gospel, to push you further down the road of sanctification and to make you, to mold you and shape you into who God created you to be in Christ. Look, y'all, God even orchestrated events such to bring you right where you're sitting this morning to worship in a dark theater And to hear this particular message and be encouraged and challenged to keep on keeping on, to keep calm and carry on, because God is at work. Brothers and sisters, God is still in control. He has not fallen asleep at the wheel. He's 100% actively doing what he does, even in the hard situations that you're in right now. So praise God. Praise God that he does what he said he would do, that he fulfills his promises in his own mysterious, sovereign, perfect way. Amen? God will do what he said he will do in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect way. So keep calm and carry on. Finally, we can also keep calm and carry on because God will do what he said he would do himself. Verses 16 and 17 wrap up Matthew's genealogical account and serve as a transition into the familiar narrative of verses 18 through 25 where we find the miraculous story of the incarnation of Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle from which all other miraculous acts prepare for, exhibit, or result from. And we could spend several sermons exploring the mystery and the significance of this grand miracle as recounted in Matthew 1, 18-25. However, at the tail end of the time I have with you this morning, I want to zoom in on one word in these verses, one name or, or one title to be more specific, and that is the name title of Emmanuel. As we work our way towards Emmanuel in verse 23, we see in verse 18 that Christ's virgin conception took place in the context of a betrothal relationship between a girl named Mary and a guy named Joseph. To be betrothed was, was kind of a, a legally binding marital engagement. Think more serious than an engagement, but not yet marriage. And it was during this betrothal period that Joseph finds out that his soon-to-be bride was pregnant and not by him. But being a compassionate man, it says, Joseph decides to end their relationship quietly as to try and preserve as much dignity for Mary as possible. However, verse 20 tells us that as he, Joseph, considered these things, as as he wrestled with such a heartbreaking and seemingly hopeless situation, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, revealing to him the unfathomable reality that Mary's conception was by the power of the Holy Spirit and that Joseph should not hesitate to go through with his marriage to her. The angel also tells Joseph in verse 21 that when the baby is born, they are to give him the name Jesus, Jesus which is technically the Hellenized or Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means the one who will save. Remember that. As the angel tells Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. And finally, in verses 22 and 23, Matthew looks back on the amazing, dramatic circumstances surrounding Christ's conception, and he sees a clear connection with the prophet Isaiah's messianic prophecy hundreds of years earlier when he declared in Isaiah seven fourteen, Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And this name, Matthew tells us at the end of verse 23, means God with us. Here's the connection. Matthew connects Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, and the angel's declaration that the child's name will be Jesus because he will save his people to make the unbelievable point which the entire Christian faith hangs on. Namely, that Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, this Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins, is no one less than God himself. Brothers and sisters, nearly 2,000 years ago, God himself, existent before time, creator of the universe, did the unfathomable. At just the right time, and in a way beyond all human comprehension, God himself, who is eternal and outside of time and space, entered into time and space. The power of creation himself stooped down and became one of us. The second member of the Trinity, holy and perfect, entered into a sinful and broken world on a rescue mission to ransom a people, to ransom his people himself. Brothers and sisters, one night... One silent night, one holy night, in a little podunk town called Bethlehem, in a manger surrounded by the rank stench of animal feces, God himself entered the world to do the dirty work of dealing with the rankness of our sin, to die to redeem us, to liberate us, to save us from the captivity, the bondage, the slavery of Satan and sin, and to reconcile us with our Creator. That, brothers and sisters, is what happened on that first Christmas, and that's what happened at the Incarnation. God fulfilled his promise in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect way, himself. And as believers, we still experience Emmanuel, God with us every moment of our lives. For Christ has given us the very Spirit of God, to reside, to dwell, to be with us forever. In John 14, 16, Jesus tells his disciples and all those that would come to follow him, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And it is God himself, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the counselor who strengthens us in our faith, It is God himself, the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin, who who guides us in all truth and who empowers us to obey, who teaches us to pray, who who produces Christ-like fruit in our life and reminds us that we are children, beloved children of a living God. It is God himself, the Holy Spirit, who comforts us in heartbreak, who encourages us in setback and gives joy in the joyless, peace in the peaceless, and hope in what seems like the most hopeless situations. It is God himself, the Holy Spirit, that helps us keep calm and carry on. Because, get this, it is God himself, the Holy Spirit, who keeps us calm. And carries us on. Brothers and sisters, you can't keep calm. You can't find true rest on your own. You and your life in this world are too weak and broken. You can't carry on. You can't live this Christian life on your own. Sin and sin's effects and, and Satan and his attacks in your life and in this world are too great. You can only keep calm and carry on. You can only have true peace and live a life of true faithfulness when God himself does it himself in and for you. And if you are a believer this morning, he has done it himself. He is doing it himself, and he has made a blood commitment to keep on doing it until he himself returns or calls you home. Christ Central, brothers and sisters. The birth of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, shows us that God is faithful to fulfill his promises in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect way, himself. So don't give up. I know life is hard for a lot of us right now. Don't tap out. Keep on living, keep on praying, keep on believing, keep on resting, keep on hoping, keep on growing and loving and serving, keep on fighting, keep on worshiping, keep calm and carry on through the power of God himself.